Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. The number of people hospitalized with COVID-19 continues to rise, and healthcare workers are feeling the strain. On today's show, we talk with leaders from two Northern Colorado hospital systems to find out how the surge in COVID patients is affecting staff. And we'll hear about Coloradans working to help get vulnerable American allies out of Afghanistan as U.S. involvement there comes to an end. That's just ahead. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Colorado hospitals are filling with COVID-19 patients again. This week, Larimer County health officials announced intensive care unit beds were at 103% capacity. It marks the second week in a row that ICU beds in the county have been above 90% capacity. And hospital staff are feeling the stress. Dr. Michelle Barron is the Senior Medical Director of Infection Prevention for UC Health, overseeing 13 hospitals. Dr. Stephen Leckie is the Chief Medical Officer for Banner Fort Collins Medical Center and McKee Medical Center. They both join us now to talk about what COVID care is looking like in their hospitals and how it's impacting staff morale. Dr. Barron, Dr. Leckie, thanks for talking with us. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I want to start by talking about where we are in the pandemic uh, compared to earlier this year in the spring. What were hospitals looking like back then in terms of COVID-19 patients in care? Dr. Leckie? Yeah, so at this point last year, um, with our prior two surges, both in the spring and then in the late fall, early winter, um, we, you know, we were very busy with COVID patients, very high acuity, lots and lots of uh, patients in the ICUs um, and lots of use of ventilators. Um, and at that time, much of everything else that we, many of our other care environments were very slow. So despite being very, very busy with COVID in the hospital, our emergency departments, our, you know, our, our clinics, our ambulatory centers uh, were, were, were relatively slow in terms of uh, volume um, because of people being staying home and quarantining and, and, and doing a lot of appropriate social distancing. Um, in contrast, now all of our uh, care environments are very busy, um, and that's uh, quite a bit different than it was a year ago. Right. And Dr. Barron, how about you? What was the situation like back earlier in the spring? Similar to what was just described in that a lot of the emergency department visits were down. A lot of the ambulatory spaces were um, shut down because so much focus was on the inpatient arena where we had just, you know, a huge number of critical ill patients. And so it was all hands on deck at that point in terms of moving things uh, to the inpatient side. And um, obviously things are continue to change and evolve and it's very different now. Right. Yeah. Um, Dr. Barron, uh, how, how did things change over the summer and, and what do things look like now in UC Health Hospitals? Over the summer, we had a steady decrease in the inpatient hospitalizations. Our ambulatory and our surgical areas opened up to start dealing with the backlog of all those cases that we had obviously delayed. 
Um, and um, over the summer, our emergency department visits have been steadily rising as well. So I think we all felt pretty good in terms of the numbers. COVID certainly didn't go away. Hospitalizations were still ongoing, but they felt, I guess, um, more manageable than where we are now. Um, there were always some patients in the hospital, but not to the same degree we had seen in the spring. So I think everybody was feeling optimistic um, that the trends of COVID would be where we could just manage them along with all the other things that we normally manage. Right. And Dr. Leckie, is that uh, kind of a similar situation uh, to what you're seeing at Banner and McKee? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, we were very optimistic. Of course, we, as she stated, we continue to have COVID patients, but at a very manageable level uh, compared to right now. Mm. Dr. Leckie, let me ask you this. How serious are the cases that you're seeing right now? And are you seeing more people in ICU beds or on ventilators? Yeah, I mean, we're, we, we're definitely um, seeing lots of patients who uh, become very quickly critically ill, um, requiring uh, ICU care. Um, you know, and I, uh, in contrast to, you know, the other surgeons, uh, you know, I'll just point out that, you know, 90% of the folks that we are, are hospitalizing are unvaccinated. So most of these patients, uh, in addition, most of these patients uh, or two-thirds of them continue to be between the ages of 20 and 65, which is different than the prior surgeries, wherein 50% of the patients were over 65. And so quite a shift in the demographics of an age distribution of the folks that we we're seeing hospitalized with COVID. Um, and, and there's many reasons for that. It sounds like a lot more uh, younger people are being affected this time. Dr. Leckie, you mentioned vaccines, and of course, that is a big difference between patients who are being admitted now and those admitted, you know, last year or in January, uh, is that vaccines are widely available. How do you think that factor of preventability affects morale for doctors and hospital staff? Well, the I think our all of our teams take great pride uh, in the privilege and obligation to provide the highest level of safety and care for our patients which includes being empathetic to all patients. Um, I think we we do recognize that, you know, it's unfortunate that um, people who are sick now are unvaccinated, but, you know, we are professionals and we understand that men, we've always taken care of patients who make health choices that are different than ours. Um, but we have, we have to remind ourselves of that every day and make sure that we're meeting each patient where they're at um, in an empathetic and, and kind way. And Dr. Barron, when people come into the hospital now, really sick with COVID, what do they say? I'm wondering if they're expressing regret for not being vaccinated. Yeah, certainly that's some of the things that we've been hearing. And it just, um, it's one of those moments where you just wish you could go back in time and have them really appreciate the consequences of some of their actions. I think we all have that in life though, but one of my ED colleagues has told me that uh, when patients come in and they're really sick and they're diagnosed with COVID, that they often do express that regret and, or ask and say, can I get my vaccine now? And unfortunately we have to say it's a little bit too late. And some of that messaging obviously ends up translating to their loved ones to where then they are now motivated to get vaccinated. So it's not completely lost uh, in terms of the, 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 the effect of this, but still you sort of wish we could, again, have intervened sooner. Right. 
And what about staff? Uh, We know earlier this week, the State Board of Health enacted a requirement that all staff at Colorado hospitals and healthcare facilities, long-term care facilities, be vaccinated. Uh, Have UC Health hospitals had any issues with unvaccinated staff? And do you anticipate any issues with the requirement? So um, we instituted this mandate actually prior to the state um, board of health ruling on this. And we um, are allowing medical as well as religious exemptions. Right now, 93% of all our staff throughout of the 26,000 employees at UC Health are already vaccinated. Uh, About 4% of those have exemptions that have already been approved. So we just have, you know, 3%, which is actually still... Um, not a big number, and we anticipate most of those will come through. Um, So we were obviously supportive of the Board of Health recommendation as well, just to, especially smaller centers who potentially would have been affected by this, where their staff could then say, well, I'm just going to work for a place that doesn't have this requirements. And at the end of the day, we felt just strongly that the vaccine is safe. It's very effective. And we are here to protect our patients. Our patients don't have a choice if they're sick and come into the hospital, but we do have a choice to work in healthcare, and it's our responsibility to keep them as safe as possible. Dr. Leckie, I want to ask you, too, about your vaccination rates overall at Banner in Fort Collins and McKee. And does the FDA granting approval to the Pfizer vaccine make a difference in acceptance of the vaccine? Yeah, so our, our vaccination rates across our staff are similar to those that uh, Dr. Barron just uh, quoted for UCH. Um, we continue to have you know opportunities to educate our staff about the science um, for those who have not chosen to get vaccinated yet. Um, we wanna make sure that they uh, are able to have full access to that and, and understand why it's so recommended. Um, certainly there were people who um, were reticent or hesitant about vaccination until the FDA did give full approval to the Pfizer vaccine. Um, and so we are grateful for that. And I think it is going to move some uh, some people, some of our employees and our community members who were hesitant to get vaccinated. So I think that is a very positive thing. Well, of course, we have the Labor Day weekend coming up. And what we've been seeing is holidays where people are excited to gather and celebrate uh, are typically followed by a spike then in COVID cases and exposures. Uh, I'm wondering, are you bracing for a post-Labor Day surge later this month? And Dr. Leckie, I'll start with you. Yeah, that definitely has been the pattern for the last 18 months. Um, You know, I think um, I, I think there is a, a comfort with being in, in public more than we had in the past, and it's probably more than we'd like. Um, we continue to advocate that people um, socially distance and wear masks, particularly if they are unvaccinated, um, and particularly if they have you know children under the age of 12 who haven't had the opportunity to be vaccinated. I, I think we will, uh, right now, I think uh, it's probably the same in all of our hospitals, that we're taking one day at a time. We're hopeful that there is not a significant surge because um, it would be it will be difficult to um, continue to escalate uh, our capacity to care for patients. Um, but I th- I, you raise a great question, and, and right now we are kind of going day by day. Um, but we'll, I, I think it's probably going to be some increase in activity no matter what after the holiday. I'd like to end by just asking how people are doing. Uh, working through this pandemic has been nothing short of brutal on medical professionals everywhere. And it feels like the reprieve that we were all hoping for with the development of the vaccine uh, is delayed again. Dr. Barron, uh, how how are you holding up and how are employees coping? 
I think we're all tired. I would be lying if I didn't say we're all very tired. Um, I think we all are reaching in for those reserves. I can't say enough how much uh, mental health across all employees, uh, the community has been impacted by this. And I think it's a good thing that people I think are feeling more comfortable being able to express that. And certainly there's a lot of resources out there, both at our hospital in the community and at large to help people sort of co deal with this. It's not something that's just affected us at work. It affects us as at home as well. And so um, I feel very lucky to have that level of support both at work and at home to help me get through the day. But some days are definitely more challenging than others. And for you, Dr. Lucky. Yeah, I would echo her comments that, you know, we our teams are tired. Um, we spend a lot of, they are long days, um, both for leaders and for frontline staff. And uh, we, we spend a lot of time talking about how to continue to build resilience, um, offer lots of uh, opportunities for debrief or, or, or people to, you know, have a partner to talk to. We, you know, are, are also very focused on making sure that we emphasize that our, our employees do those things that help them bring balance, whether it's exercise or eating well, or or connecting with with you know loved ones. Um, it's it's going to be critical that we continue that because I, I I think we're going to be in we're going to be busy for quite a while yet, and we will we have to keep very close eyes on our eye on our teams to make sure that we're supporting them the best that we can. Dr. Stephen Lucky is the chief medical officer for Banner Fort Collins Medical Center and McKee Medical Center. Dr. Michelle Barron is the Senior Medical Director of Infection Prevention for UC Health. Thank you both so much for speaking with us today. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. The last U.S. military plane left Hamid Karzai International Airport in Kabul on Monday, marking an end to the Afghanistan war. In the days leading up to that moment, thousands rushed to the airport, hoping to get onto a plane and to escape the Taliban. One of those people was Mahmoud Shamsi, an Afghan and former Colorado State University student. Once we got there, it was a chaos, like probably around 2,000 people just pushing, you know, to get to the front. That's Shamsi describing the scene at the airport during an interview with KUNC's military reporter, Michael Deoana, who is here with us now. Michael, welcome. Hi, Erin. Now, you've been covering the issues facing America's Afghan allies for several months now. What can you tell us about the people that you've been in contact with? They're interpreters to U.S. troops. They worked for contractors uh, during the war. And in a broader sense, they're people like Mahmoud Shamsi, people who could be targeted by the Taliban because they worked for change within the Afghan government. President Biden said he would help Afghan allies and other at-risk Afghans get out of the country. But he has been criticized for the way the evacuations were carried out. Yeah, there were many uh, people who said things didn't have to go this way, including Congressman Jason Crow, a former Army Ranger and a Democrat. He and others had been sounding alarms in a bipartisan effort uh, since April when Biden first announced the withdrawal. They called for streamlining the process for awarding visas to Afghan allies and expediting Afghan allies getting out. Their fear was, bluntly, that allies could be killed by the Taliban. But in the end, most of the evacuations were carried out over the course of the week. 
So how did things play out for Mahmoud Shamsi? Well, let's begin this story half a world away in Fort Collins. That's where Kelsey Bond was watching all of this unfold. There was a Facebook post as soon as, um, as, soon as the Taliban started to take over more um, cities in mm-hmm. Afghanistan. Bon is basically the last person you might think of as being riveted by news out of Afghanistan. She works as an independent consultant in education reform and workforce strategy. But Mahmoud Shamsi is the reason she was so caught up in it all. They were both students in Colorado State University's MBA program. He's a character, and he's somebody who, um, I mean, he could strike up a conversation with anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely, like, makes everybody feel comfortable around them. So, so quickly formed that friendship. <clears throat> and then after he graduated, he went back to Afghanistan. Um, he has a wife, kids, right? Afghanistan mm-hmm. is home. The two stayed in touch through social media. And as more towns fell to the Taliban, Shamsi reached out for help. Essentially just saying how he and his family are high, like high targets um, because of their role, because of their family name. Um, he worked for the Afghani government. Bon immediately texted Shamsi. And he just said, like, I'm desperate, anything that you can do to help. He told her that he feared that if the Taliban found him, they would kill him. And he worried about what would happen to his wife and his daughters if that happened. And this is where I'll get emotional, but um, I immediately hang up the phone and I just have this moment of like, if he's going to die, then I have to try everything I can. So she asked Shamsi what she could do. He starts sending documents and data of just saying, I think we're eligible for these visas. Can you help expedite this? Bon was suddenly getting a crash course in visas with an alphabet soup of names, SIVs, P1s, P2s. She got in touch with mutual colleagues of her and Shamsi's at CSU. She asked friends in political circles for advice. They said the best step is to start a phone campaign, an email campaign to just advocate to your senators. Bon also set up a website for supporters, dubbing the effort Mobilize for Mahmoud. Thousands of people visited, donations rolled in, helpers rallied to the cause, and aides for lawmakers even stepped up, including staffers for one of Colorado's U.S. senators. Michael Bennett's office was giving me updates like every hour, just calling and saying, here's the status of it all. But despite the efforts, Shamsi and his family were still in limbo, wondering if they'd get out as President Biden's withdrawal neared. He was told the Taliban had been knocking at his door and had gone into hiding with one of his daughters. His wife went into hiding with their other daughter. All the while, Shamsi texted his friends in Colorado and elsewhere. Ultimately, right, he was casting a wide net to all of his contacts. And then he caught a break a ticket out of Afghanistan for his family and also a sister. But it wasn't to the United States. It was a humanitarian mission that would take him to Poland. Shamsi shaved his head. He took off his glasses in hopes he wouldn't be recognized on the streets, especially at Taliban checkpoints. And when he reunited with his family, they ended up stuck in the middle of huge crowds at the airport. And of course, everything was just mad chaos. Taliban who were in the crowd to calm the crowd or make them sit down or you know do whatever they would start firing or the British soldiers would start firing and then the kids would scream. That's Shamsi speaking to me on Zoom. I thought you know 
wow, this is not going to happen. He told a Taliban guard that his daughter was sick, and that's why he was leaving. That helped him get close enough to the gate to ask a British soldier to let his family in. But the soldier wouldn't do it. And not long later, people rushed the gate, leaving the family's luggage trampled. Shamsi worried that the same thing might happen to his family. And I was like, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to stay. I'm not going to, you know, if, if I stay, there's a chance that Taliban may find me and do whatever. But if I, if I, if I don't stay, and if I stay, you know, I'm, I'm sure that my kids are going to, you know, something is going to happen to them, and I'm not going to do this. But his sister pleaded with him to hang on. So did Kelsey Bond in messages, telling him that she had been speaking to U.S. officials, making them aware of his situation. So Shamsi basically just froze, waiting, hoping through the night, feeling intense pain in his back as the sun rose because he'd been holding his daughter the entire time. Knowing that, you know, I will not be able to take my kids out and they would be living under Taliban rule was worse. So I kept you know, standing. I never thought I could do that ever, but I did. Then a soldier opened the gate to the airport and the crowd swelled like an ocean of people. But somehow we just you know, decided that this is now or never and we pushed our way. My kids were screaming and crying like hell. My wife was screaming and I had to pull her hand and she was pulling my sister's hand and I was holding one of my kids and trying to push our way and somehow we made it. Kelsey Bond had been sleepless wondering what happened. Then a photo of Shamsi and his family at the airport popped up on her phone. I think all of us just like cried together. <laughs> I asked Shamsi how he felt the moment the plane left Kabul for Poland. I felt weird. I don't know. I, I just cleansed up my tears because, you know, I was leaving everything, everything uh, we've worked for all these years. Including a private university that he and his family helped found a decade ago. And Aaron, there's so much more to this story. That's just one part of the story. The chapter of how Mahmoud Shamsi and his family got out on August 18th with a little help from friends like Kelsey Bond in Fort Collins. And Michael, that brings up so many other questions like what's next for him and his family? He spent time in quarantine, but now is out and at an Airbnb, still in Poland. Um, that's being paid for with money raised by Kelsey Bond's webpage. Shamsi is also a Fulbright scholar. And I heard a story about a fellow scholar from the Fort Collins area who helped see that toys and clothes were being sent to his kids. Mm. Now, what about a visa to the U.S.? Shamsi, Bon, and their friends are working on that. Uh, he doesn't speak Polish, so um, that doesn't seem to be the place where he belongs. He feels he has the most friends outside of Afghanistan in Fort Collins. And, um, you know, he has this dream of riding a bike with his kids in the city one day, but that's so far away. Right now, um, there's this whole confusing visa process that everyone's trying to navigate. So a lot up in the air. Indeed. Now, I know you've spoken to other Coloradans who are trying to help Afghans. What is the big picture right now? 
Yeah, a couple things. First, there are many Afghans who were allies to the United States who did not get out. A one aid group I spoke to, the nonprofit International Refugee Assistance Project, knows of hundreds in the special immigrant visa process who should have been eligible for evacuation. There are also reports of tens of thousands of other Afghans who might have been eligible for evacuation but didn't get out. So now the U.S. is relying on diplomacy with the Taliban to see if people can leave the country. I've heard that charter planes could be an option for some, but all of this is very different than the process of evacuations that just took place and ended. On the other hand, though, many Afghans did make it out. Yeah, there's not an exact breakdown yet on the numbers, but since August 14th, U.S. aircraft evacuated 6,000 Americans and 73,500 third country nationals and Afghans. That last category includes special immigrant visas, consular staff, and at-risk Afghans and families. In all, counting evacuations by other countries as well, 123,000 people left Afghanistan through the airport in Kabul in less than three weeks. And that includes Mahmoud Shamsi and his family. Michael Dayoana is KUNC's investigative and military reporter. Thank you so much for, for bringing us his story. You're welcome. That's our show for today. Next week on Colorado Edition, we examine how fentanyl, a drug up to 100 times more powerful than morphine, is affecting the West. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman, Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Our theme music was composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.